Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. Scientology did determine that Danny Masterson did do these things, particularly in the case of Jane Doe 1. In fact, there was even uh, a confidential settlement that occurred between Danny and Jane Doe 1 while they were both still in Scientology, a financial settlement relating to this crime. And that simply never would have even been permitted to occur if Scientology hadn't determined that this, in fact, happened. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only and you want to see all three of our faces, head on over to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like and subscribe, join in on the conversation. So today's episode is a little bit different for a few reasons. Number one, we are talking about breaking news, the Danny Masterson trial. We are going to be going into all of it, what's going on, everything you need to know, and why it's important to this channel specifically, getting into the Scientology side of things. The second interesting fact is I have my husband here with me. Hey, Jonathan. (laughs) Yes, had to get in on this discussion. We've both been following the very in-depth and detailed recaps of the Danny Masterson trial covered by our guest today. Let me bring him on so we can join in. Thank you so much for being here, Aaron Smith-Levin. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Your channel is very inspiring. We've had you on before. It is Growing Up in Scientology, and you go into everything Scientology, and you even flew out to LA to give us day-by-day coverage, actually twice-a-day coverage, of the Danny Masterson trial. So for people who aren't familiar, let's get into a little bit of the basics of what is going on. Do you want to kick us off, Aaron? Sure. So Danny Masterson is a Scientologist actor who is charged with three counts of violent rape. And uh, the three charged victims are all former Scientologists. And there are other victims as well, but only three, uh, only three of the victims uh, he's facing charges for. Um, mm. These attacks occurred, if I recall correctly, between 2002. <sighs> between 2000 and 2002. That's the basics of it. Yeah. Because he was a Scientologist and because his victims were Scientologists and because there's a policy in Scientology of never being allowed to report another member to the authorities. Uh, And and there's also uh, sort of a principle in Scientology that you're the ultimate cause of everything that happens to you, good or Mm. bad. And so even if something horrible happens to you, like sexual assault, uh, Scientology would have you as, as a member want to take a look at how spiritually speaking, it was actually your fault. And you should take responsibility for it having happened. So th- this principle in Scientology regarding um, causation, responsibility, victim blaming, uh, combined with the fact that you can't report members to the authorities, uh, played a role in how the reporting of these crimes uh, w- was conducted. Um, mm-hmm. Some reports were given to Scientology authorities. Um, some victims uh, n- never went to the police at all. Other victims went uh, many, uh, many, many years later. Um, one of the victims, despite this rule in Scientology of not being able to report another member, actually did report Danny to the police. Um, 
uh, filed a police report on, on, on the attack. And when a Scientologist reports crimes like this, Scientology, they don't just say it's your fault and leave it at that. They actually dig into the details of the accusations. They sort of do their own investigation. It's just that the perpetrator is investigated. Um, uh, the, the victim of the crime is investigated to the same degree that the perpetrator of the crime is investigated. Mm-hmm. And Scientology did determine that Danny Masterson did do these things, particularly in the case of Jane Doe 1. And wow. Absolutely. And in fact, there was even uh, a confidential settlement that occurred between Danny and Jane Doe 1 while they were both still in Scientology, a financial settlement relating to this crime. And that simply never would have even been permitted to occur if Scientology hadn't determined that this, in fact, happened. Um, Right. So, you know, there's a lot of Scientology evidence in the form of reports and dispatches and emails um, that wasn't permitted uh, to be admitted as evidence in the first trial that was permitted uh, in this trial. There was a, a whole expert witness on the subject of Scientology who testified in this trial. That didn't occur in the previous trial. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of testimony in this case on the subject of Scientology specifically for those reasons. Right. And we'll also get into this a little bit at the end, but this may have actual future ramifications for Scientology as a whole because of some of the stuff that went down at the trial, which I want to get into. But first, I want to get into your vantage point. You have a very interesting perspective because of all the ways that you're connected to the case. And I think, Jonathan, you wanted to talk about a few of those. Yeah, I just, Aaron, I think, well, first off, we've been following your story for three weeks now. And I feel like your particular vantage point is probably one of the more interesting vantage points just because of your connection to almost every person. And there are a lot of characters that are involved. This is a very heavy topic, but it's almost unreal. Each of these characters brings something to this overall story that to the the person that's listening to this wouldn't wouldn't believe. The theatrics. The theatrics of it. (laughs) But even down to when you and your wife were Sea Org members. Like the Jane Doe's themselves came up to your wife, I believe, right? To to talk about the initial ethics report. Yeah. So my wife had a job in the Sea Org. Um, it's called the LRH host, the L. Ron Hubbard host. Um, it's a relatively senior position whose role is to, in some ways, be like the last port of call for people who are having trouble getting help but don't really know who to go to. And so her role was such that you could go to her and she had the seniority to sort of cut through all the red tape and help people who were just falling through the cracks in the organization. So Jane Doe won, uh, went to my wife uh, at the time to um, uh, complain, for lack of a better word, about how this whole thing was being mishandled. Because uh, my wife had oversight over um, the Celebrity Center and also uh, Scientology's advanced organization in LA. So Danny Masterson was a Scientologist doing his services at the Celebrity Center. Jane Doe One was a higher level Scientologist, so she was doing her services at the advanced organization. My wife, in her capacity, had oversight over both organizations. So um, my wife is one of the people that Jane Doe One went to when all this occurred. And there's another victim who's still in Scientology and has never come forward Mm. um, because of that, who also went to my wife. Hmm. We've never, no one's even heard her name. I mean, we know her name, but her name's never even come up in the trial. Wow. So what is it like for you sitting in on 
this trial, knowing what you know, having these connections, and you had mentioned that the Jane Doe specifically asked you to come and cover this because there has been virtually no media coverage on this at all. I mean, that's something that Leah Remini has been really passionate about talking about on her platform as well. Where is the media coverage? So how is it for you sitting in, knowing what you know, and listening to the defense kind of just pull things out of thin air? I mean, if any, honestly, it seems like from your recaps, it's pretty laughable what they're trying to do. Like, could you explain what's going on, what they're trying to pull out of thin air to make this a real case? The defense's main focus in their strategy is to seize on the fact that in the first police interviews each one of the Jane Doe's gave, um, they didn't, uh, as no one ever even possibly could, they didn't give every single detail about every single thing that happened mm-hmm. um, exactly as it happened. And uh, it's almost like, you know, they say anything you ca- you say can and will be used against you. Usually you think that only applies to the criminal. That is absolutely what is be- what the defense is trying to do to the women as far as their first police interview. First of all, remember, these people were Scientologists. They don't trust the police. They think the police are in the pocket of Scientology possibly because the LAPD and Scientology have a very cozy relationship. Mm-hmm. So they're already distrusting of the police as, as Scientologists. They're talking about something that is absolutely horrible, one of the worst things they've ever experienced. Plus, it's it's very intimate and not easy to discuss, even if it wasn't a traumatic thing. Like, it's very private and and intimate. And uh, what, what I'm, everything I'm explaining here is why they actually brought in another expert witness who hadn't testified in the first testimony to talk about the non-intuitive behaviors that victims of sexual assault can exhibit after yes. the assault. Is this Dr. Ziv? It was Dr. Barbara Ziv. And so, uh, but you know, the defense strategy is simply to go, look at this interview, the first time you ever spoke about this to a police officer ever. And in some cases, the first time these women ever spoke to a police officer uh, formally ever. And then comparing the first interview to subsequent interviews and acting like any details that were recovered as time went on must have been fabricated because if they were important, you would have mentioned them mm-hmm. in, in the first interview. That really is the substance of it. Um, even if even if minor details change, if someone said, oh, I didn't have a drink or I had one drink or I had two drinks. And, and, and sometimes what will happen is the victim in the first interview doesn't have a clear memory and she's speculating and she goes, I don't know. Maybe it could be this, this, or this. Just being honest and open, just talking the way people would casually uh, speak, you know, just in private. And yet now, the, you know, now they're being interrogated as to, well, in this interview, you said this. And then later in the interview, you said this. And the, and the Jane Doe has to go, well, no, no, I didn't actually say that. I said it might have been that because I right. didn't know. So the defense just takes things out of context. And um, I mean, I guess it's the strategy, right? Create reasonable doubt, make it seem like the victims, uh, the details of the stories have changed. And yet you would expect some um, uh, details of the stories to have changed, particularly mm-hmm. details that aren't actually terribly relevant to exactly. the act that occurred. And yet um, Cohen wants to almost use a lot of tiny details that have changed over time to be like, well, if these details have changed over time, then the whole, the whole thing probably um, has, uh, has been embellished or exaggerated, or the women have tried to tweak their, 
story is a little, yeah. I mean, he, he stops short of saying they're actually just making it up. Uh, he, he really is like they're embellishing it to make it sound worse than it was or to add more force than it was or to, oh, he definitely says they're all lying about being drugged, that right. they are, were just drunk. Um, and that's the, well, that's the other, you know, the element of the case that I didn't actually mention in the beginning is that um, it is very clear that Danny Masterson has a modus operandi of drugging women, putting alcohol, uh, putting uh, drug, the drug they speculated that was GHB, I think it was, GHP, GHB. And putting it in their drinks and 20 to 30 minutes later, they lose almost all control of their faculties and he rapes them. Um, Wow. From my perspective, what can be frustrating is seeing people cast doubt on something that I know from a Scientology perspective absolutely occurred. Like, you know, I guess there's this sort of this trope of a a woman just exaggerating something and making a fake claim to, to, to get revenge or something like that. And you go, that's not really possible in Scientology (laughs) because the, the person making the claim is investigated just as thoroughly. It's Mm. not, it's not like it is a normal society where there's, you know, uh, you know, protections baked in those protections don't exist in Scientology. You don't have people just making false claims against someone in Scientology because there's no, there's no, there's no benefit to doing so. You're already looked down upon in the first place for portraying yourself as a victim, just outright lying about something like that or making it up. I mean, that's something that would get you expelled from Scientology. Mm. And none of these women were expelled from Scientology for making these, making these reports. They were just told, um, what did you do to pull it in? That's sort of Scientology's phrase for, you know, you're, you're the cause of, you pulled something in, you're, you're the cause of, um, receiving some bad act. Um, and so anyway, you mentioned just my unique perspective. I'm sitting here going, God, I just really wished all the jurors, um, could understand truly how in the world of Scientology, these things have already been proven to have occurred. And yet we're sitting here in a courtroom acting like, you know, well, the jury's out. Aaron, I'm curious to know, because we went to the closing statements. We were there too. And we got to witness firsthand what you've been talking about in all of these daily recaps about how the defense just kind of drones on. And it's very mind numbing. And they're really just getting into the weeds of things. When you have a defense that's built on semantics and discrediting, I think Cohen said uh, on the closing statements, if this particular Jane could be wrong about this, Maybe she's wrong about everything that she says. And maybe all of the victims are making it up. That like, was such a weird thing. Like maybe everyone in the world is lying then. So could it be possible? You've been there to witness and and we think you've been pretty unbiased in your reporting. And uh, you've, ma- you've made it very clear that if people had, uh, if the defense had any points to score on the board that you would note it. What do you think they have done right, the defense team? I think Cohen did make a very good effort, a good show of very much highlighting what he claims are inconsistencies in the stories over the years. Um, now, uh, what he claims are inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for in, in one of the first police reports, uh, the one of the first interview reports from when Jane Doe first went to the LAPD, the report itself doesn't contain mention of a firearm. Uh, however, the totality of the testimony about the attack on Jane Doe 1 includes a, a moment where Danny reaches over to the side table, opens up a drawer, picks up a gun, doesn't really point it like at her per se, just kind of like 
holds it kind of like like this or whatever. Um, that looked like I was pointing it right out, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the gun is not terribly relevant to the attack. Jane Doe One says she never felt like she was being threatened with the gun. She never felt she was in fear for her life. It's not like he held the gun on her or something like that. And she also claims that she did mention the gun in the first report. But you have a detective who didn't include it in the report and claims, well, if she would have mentioned it, I would have put it in there. And and he was asked, well, is there any way, at, at, at any chance at all she could have mentioned a firearm and you wouldn't have put it in there? And he goes, well, if that would have happened, it would have been a brain fart. And you're Gosh. like, well, okay. It sounds like you're saying it's possible. You could have right. forgotten to write it down. Right. But he makes a very big deal about the firearm not being mentioned. It's also an example of if the investig, like, you know, these interviews are conducted a particular way. And if a certain detail isn't asked about, it may not come up. You know, especially you're sitting down with police officers, depending on your frame of mind or how you're expecting this to go, you're there to answer the questions. And if it's not asked about, it might not have come up. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm harping on this gun point because Cohen harped on the gun point. And, you know, I know that if you're, if I'm on that jury and, I, and there's a chance that I could be sitting there going, come on, a gun didn't make it in the police report, but it's like, well, the officer said it was possible. Well, he, actually he spent like five minutes saying it would be totally impossible. And then he said, well, it would be, it would have been a brain fart. Oh my <laughs> you're like, gosh. okay, but which part of that is the jury going to, which part of that's going to sit with the jury most? The fact that he absolutely never would have made a mistake like that or just that ah, it would have been a brain fart. So you go, it's a toss-up. It's it's doubt. It's it's a possible point of doubt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I think that is what Cohen did a good job of is at least trying to make a, a mountain out of a molehill every time there was some inconsistency in a report. Now, I've been saying in my coverage that I, I, I didn't really think it was landing. You know, I didn't really think yeah. it was resonating with the jury. But if we're just looking at his strategy and his approach, I feel like he did do a good job being singularly focused on taking minor points and making them seem like really big points. And you just never really know how much of that lands with the jury or not. Yeah, it seemed like the entire case was built off of inconsistencies in police reports. But I think it's important to note that one, Dr. Ziv, the forensic psychologist, right, is her title. When she was talking about what is common of victims who have experienced sexual assault, um, she talked about how a very few, like 15 percent are are people who actually fight back. Only 15% actually fight back. And 95% stay with the abuser if they are currently in a relationship. And I think she provided more insight as well about testing the waters and how victims of assault generally just give the bare minimum information that they need to give in order for something to be done about it, they're not sitting there talking in excruciating detail. And so when later they realize this is going to be used against me and they give more detail, Cohen, the defense attorney, is saying, well, it probably didn't happen because she didn't give it the first time. So I think that's something that's really important to know. And the other thing is that I really appreciated Claire Headley, who is the expert Scientologist witness who came to the stand she mentioned that when you give your ethics report, these women who are in Scientology giving a report to turn Danny in, they have to essentially whitewash things and even take out uh, hot button words like rape 
and make it, it like put code in there so that when they send it to a different office, it's kind of toned down. And it, she said that that was the report that was sent to the LAPD for Jane Doe one. So, of course, mm-hmm. if you're basing the entire thing off of the police report given by Scientology, which is you, you have to take certain things out. There's just, it just doesn't make sense. You can't base the entire case on that. That very example is why the expert testimony on Scientology was so, so valuable. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing Cohen was doing was claiming that the Jane Doe's had said certain things in interviews when in reality, it was the detective who was repeating words back to the Jane Doe would alter the words a bit and the Jane Doe would just be like, yeah, uh, thinking you understand what I've said, not realizing if I say yes, I'm signing off on your version of what I just said. Right. And the detectives, it's actually pretty annoying listening to the interviews. Every time the Jane Doe says something, the detective repeats it back to them, but not quite the way they said it. And it's like, why do you keep doing that? Mm-hmm. And there were so many, there were so many places where because it makes it makes the Jane Doe's look like they're liars on the stand when Cohen's constantly saying, Didn't you tell Detective Reyes X? And they go, No, I didn't. It, it, but over and over and over again, it makes if if you don't know better, you go, wow, they always seem to forget the thing they said to the detective when really it's because it's not what they said to the detective. Right. They said one thing. The detective like one example was um, uh, Jane Doe three was telling a story and she said he hit me with um, uh, like a loosely closed fist, not a fist and not a slap, kind of a loose fist. Um, and then she said, OK, so so a slap. And she's like, sure, or yeah. But she's mm-hmm. like, but she goes, well, I already described what it was. If you want to call that a slap, fine. Yeah. But Cohen would then goes, no, 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 a slap is this. So now you're changing your story. And she goes, no, no, I'm not changing my story. They changed my words. Anyway, mm-hmm. so it, it's a, it's frustrating. I can only imagine how frustrating it is to have to be peppered with those kind of uh, questions, making you look like you either have a horrible memory or you're lying. But that's pretty much all that Philip Cohen did. Didn't the judge, Almedo, didn't she actually pull Cohen to the side and say, you have to stop putting words in these ladies' mouths? There was a lot of objections for you're misstating the testimony. He would ask questions, um, sort of loaded questions that misstated what the testimony had already been. And I mean, there was just tons and tons and tons of objections like that. But again, I guess that's his job. Yeah. How did you feel about the judge, her presence in this and the prosecution? I thought the judge was amazing. I, I thought the judge was absolutely amazing. Um, uh, it, it was very clear that she took very seriously the role of um, protecting the Jane Doe's and witnesses from just unnecessary um, uh, abuse or distress. Uh, you know, on TV, you'll hear lawyers get very argumentative or make snide comments or, uh, or, or whatever. She knocked that out completely. I mean, because <laughs> Cohen did do that a few times. And she's like, just ask your next question. Stop being argumentative. Save the comments. Don't just ask the next question. Don't make any comments, please. She did tell him that many times. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, she was fantastic. And the prosecution, I thought, put on a very a very good case. They really told the story, um, you know, because the, it's a, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different people. There's a lot of different characters, the, many different years, different locations. Um, I thought they, you know, they called all the witnesses in a different order this time than they did last time. Everything made a lot more sense this time through. So I, I think it definitely, 
gives us a better chance of getting a conviction, but you just never know. I mean, they've been deliberating for probably nine or 10 hours now. Um, and they did come out with a question this afternoon asking to rewatch some video of one of the police interviews. Mm. Um, but uh, so who knows? Who knows? Wow. I, I have to assume that to rewatch that interview, they're, 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 they're hung up on something that they think might be an inconsistency. So, Ugh, that drives me crazy. And I know that you're a little short on time. I want to thank you again for jumping on to explain from your perspective. So before you have to jump off, I wanted to get your specific opinion on these certain little characters within the courtroom. So we have a few different people. We have Vicky, Scientologist number one or main, one of their main uh, lawyers who is coming to intimidate the witnesses. We have Graham Brewer coming to intimidate the witnesses. Skip LaRue. Like, I want to hear from your perspective what's going on with all of these people. It really seems like a clown show. Um, you know, Graham Brewer is someone who's been in Danny's Danny's crew. He's over in the section of the courtroom where Danny's supporters sit. He's a, he's a friend of Danny's. And he has his own past. Um uh, I don't want to give Graham a reason to try to ding your video, so I'm going to I'm going to be a little <laughs> careful with my words. He has his own past um, where Scientology allegedly had to send him away from Clearwater, Florida, where he was at one point because of um, inappropriate conduct with uh, underage girls. How about that? Let's just say that mm -hmm. um, one of those girls is one of the Jane Doe's in this case. And yet he shows up to the courtroom. I mean, actually, they, they had to kick him out of the courtroom because he kept showing up when Jane Doe 1 was testifying. And eventually they told him he couldn't. Um, but as soon as she finished testifying, he kept he kept coming back, even though there's just no reason for him to be there at all. Vicki Podboreski is an interesting one because she is representing every Scientologist. She represented every Scientologist in this case. Uh, no Scientologists were called to the stand but she represented all of the ones that were possibly going to be called to the stand. The prosecution just knew that you, you can, you can force someone to get up there, but you can't force them to tell the truth. Right. And any Scientologist they put up there was just going to lie their butts off and, and, and take, take as many people down with them as they could in the process. Um, Vicki, uh, there, there was a, a video that resurfaced this week of about 11 years ago, two private investigators showing up to harass some former Scientologists. And those two PIs said, we were hired, we work for Vicki Podboreski, who's been hired by Scientology. So Vicki's been involved in harassing former Scientologists for a very long time. I don't think it's any coincidence that it was either yesterday or the day before, my neighbors in Clearwater, Florida started texting me saying, we've got, we got a phone call today from private investigators who say they're, they're looking into you. <laughs> wow. Like, of, of course you did. Of course you did. Um, Reverend Skippy LaRue is another weird character. Um, he's a guy who's been working for Scientology for over 20 years. He's one of these sort of fake religious people that Scientology trots around to um, uh, complain that Scientology's religious freedoms are being violated um, when former members speak out about abuse or like in this case in particular, Skip LaRue was part of a group of these kind of um, religious folks for hire. By the way, most of these people are not actual religious folks. Like they don't work for the organizations they say they work for. They don't hold um, the certifications they say that they hold. Uh, th th this letter was sent 
to the presiding judge over Judge Almeida complaining that she was essentially destroying the fabric of religious freedom in America by allowing all this um, bigoted testimony against Scientology in this case. And, you know, every time Scientology would come up up in this case, Cohen um, would object. And eventually the judge did say, if Scientology doesn't want their presence in this case noted, then perhaps they should stop being so present in this case. No! (laughs) So good! (laughs) Jeez. Speaking of which, Leah Remini herself is there. And from day one, wasn't the defense trying to get her banned, kicked out of the courtroom? Yeah, they were trying to get Leah Remini banned from the courtroom. Um, uh, uh, The goal there was just to make sure the Jane Doe's felt supported when they were on the stand telling their stories and giving their testimony. So Mm -hmm. they weren't just there looking out into a, a sea of of Scientologists who are, you know, there to make them feel intimidated. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, any, you know, anybody can go into the courtroom. It doesn't matter if it's someone the Jane Doe's don't like. Graham Brewer was an exception. They didn't like, they made Graham leave. But anyone else, as long as they're sitting there, um, not being distracting or engaging in intimidating behavior, uh, they can be there. But I'll tell you, once Vicky got called out for being there, she stopped showing up. Um, and once Skippy got called out for working for Scientology, he stopped showing up as well. Tell us what happened in your own words, because I know you've mentioned that it's already been blown out of proportion in other uh, outlets, I guess you could call it, with Reverend Skippy LaRue when you found out who he actually was and how he actually oh, lied right. to the judge about not being connected to Scientology. That's right. Well, it was so weird having a guy dressed up in full minister garb walk into the court and sit right in uh, Jane Doe One's line of view that the judge asked him who he was, yeah, and whether he was affiliated with Scientology, and he said, "No, I'm not affiliated with them in any way." Now, I, I had already heard him tell one of the attorneys that Scientology had invited him to come and watch the trial. That's strange language to use. Like, it's not Scientology's party. Why do you need an invitation? Like, what does that even yeah. mean? Yeah, but I was still taking his word for it. Um, But I was interested to understand what his expected role really was. So right when court broke, I, I, you know, he was sitting basically in front of me and off to the side. And I just um, sort of leaned over and said, hey, did I did I hear you correct? Scientology invited you to come. Like, I don't get it. What did they ask you to come for? We're in the middle of this conversation, which was a totally friendly conversation. The bailiff asked us to leave the courtroom because everyone has to leave the courtroom. So we were just walking down the hallway. No, you guys were there. The hallway. um, in some ways, it's a long hallway, but it's a very confined space, a quiet yeah. space. You can hear any, you can hear everything that happens in that hallway, right? Mm-hmm. So we're just walking down the hallway, and I'm like, I don't get it. Like, uh, you said you're here to make sure Scientology's religious freedoms aren't violated, but but it's not like you're going to stand up and object. Like you're not, you're not right. one of the attorneys. Are you just supposed to report back to someone? And we were actually having just a very normal back and forth conversation, and when all of a sudden this um, this woman who had just showed up that day in the media the media section for the first time. And I didn't know who she was either. She walks up and she had a press badge and I could see that they were together. And I go, Oh, okay. So you like a, like a religious journalist and you, you know, you do stories about skip or something. And she goes, I'm with this. I'm a blogger with stand league. Now it's stand league. This is an organization Scientology created just to attack Leah Remini and everyone who appeared on her show. So once, but I didn't know that's who she was. I thought she was just a journalist, not a Scientologist, one of their hate propaganda writers. Yeah. So when she walked up I, and, and Leah's standing right next to me, Skip's here, the journalist is here. And I go, you, I'm a loud talker. I think you guys already know that. <laughs> and I go, and I go, 
<laughs> You're here with this hate propaganda blogger from an effing cult. I don't want to curse on your video, but from an <laughs> you're you're literally with the effing cult and you just lied to the judge. You just lied to the judge and you're literally here with someone from the effing cult. And um and so uh, this has been reported that we were uh, saying this guy didn't have a right to be there and watch the trial or that uh, me and Leah were screaming at him or he was assaulted. It's all just ridiculous nonsense. Yeah. Because because I – you can hear anything in that hallway. Because I got loud and and I said the F word, it caught the attention of the bailiff. He came over and said, hey, 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 listen, listen you got to keep it down. You got to show respect for the court. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, the reason it became a little bit of an issue is because it turns out there was still a few jurors – in the um, the elevator lobby, who hadn't left, even though they were all dismissed well before us, right? Well, you're you're there's not allowed to be any conversations about the trial in front of the jurors. Mm-hmm. Well, this conversation wasn't about the trial; it was about someone who was in the gallery. It technically had nothing to do with the trial, but because there was this um, uh, uh, the, because the defense the defense team was very very sensitive about the, any perceptions being given to the jurors that Scientology has been active in meddling and harassing and intimidating witnesses. He thought this, uh, he, that the fact that any of the jurors had heard a conversation where someone was sort of being accused of being an agent of Scientology somehow tainted their ability uh, to be fair in this case. So they made a whole big stink about it. The judge, you know, put it all to rest, asked the jurors who heard anything at all. I think five jurors had heard anything at all. When they gave their rendition of what they heard, what was interesting is that every single one of them heard something different and none of them actually heard what was really said. (laughs) It was pretty interesting. So anyway, after the judge had to jump through all these hoops to um, prove that this wasn't a thing, she she said, yeah, we're just good. Cohen had asked for a mistrial and she's like, yeah, request request for mistrial denied. Um, you know, let's move on. So, but it turns out, it turns out that blogger claims that I assaulted her. What? She wasn't even actually now, and claims that she filed a police report about it. What? And I'm saying, th- and I'm thinking to myself, I got to get my hands on this police report. I think technically, uh, assault could be defined as just yelling at someone. I think, like legally, perhaps. I, I don't know if that's true, but I'm kind of uh, thinking it might be. But wow. you can't file a police report on someone for yelling at you. Right. <laughs> and then on the other end, you have Graham Brewer, who on day two is suing you. Is he still, is that still a thing? He was threatening to sue me oh. uh, because I, I did a video about his history in Clearwater. And, um, and he sent me an angry letter from his lawyer threatening to sue me if I didn't take the video down and apologize. So instead, I just did more videos about his attorney's letter. Oh um, my gosh. And I kept, he keeps going and, and filing privacy complaints on my videos, thinking that it's going to do anything and it, it doesn't do anything. Um, so, yeah, no, no lawsuits, no lawsuits, no arrests, all good for now. Good. And I think before we wrap up, the last thing, the, the major thing, which has everyone talking, is how Scientology won't get their slimy little fingers out of this case and how we found out that the discovery file had been leaked to Scientology through Vicky, or we're going, allegedly, we're going to find out. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, just before some of the detectives were set to testify in this trial, Vicky Podbereski, 
um, filed an official complaint with the LAPD saying that these uh, detectives in the first trial had basically acted improperly by giving a bigoted testimony against Scientology. So Mm -hmm. she's filing an official complaint against them a day or two before they're set to testify to try to get them investigated at work. How is that not attempts to intimidate or tamper with a witness? So in in her complaint, she for some reason included a link to a shared file, some shared drive that had almost the entire redacted discovery file that the DA had turned over to the criminal defense team. Well, the judge had already ordered the defense team not to share any discovery with the civil the civil attorney people. And yet that's exactly what's happened. So it, we know Vicky uh, was the recipient of um, the material. If she was aware of the order not to share, she had a duty as an officer of the court to report the fact that somebody had given her the material. Mm. So Vicky could be in trouble for receiving the material and not reporting it. And... Uh, the judge is scheduling an evidentiary hearing to find out which member of the defense team leaked it. And there could be, there could be professional consequences. There could be fines. There could be, um, they could be in trouble with the state bar. I I mean, that's what it looks like. Wow. And what do you think this means for Scientology as a whole? Do you think their taxes exempt status could be potentially taken away? Or is that just way too big of a hopes and dreams list for us? Not, not as a result of this, not as a result of this. Um, you know, Scientology has other issues that I think will um, eventually result in the tax exempt status being taken away. Just hundreds of millions of dollars of identity theft and credit card fraud and wire fraud and bank fraud. Mm. And that's that's the kind of stuff that I expect to get their tax exempt status taken away. But not, right. n- not, not this other kind of stuff. Well, at the very least, I think this trial and your coverage of it, your in-depth coverage of it has shed so much light to people that had just no idea what's going on with this, the world of Scientology and, and this trial specifically. Um, I think this trial is going to um, really get people talking more about the cover-ups with abuse, mm-hmm. uh, the Sea Org members, like what, what does happen with an ethics report. So thank you for shedding all the light that you're doing. We, we joke that that you should be a lawyer because your coverage of it is just so <laughs> uh, spot on. If I was prepared to do all that hard work, I just might do it, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else that you want to let everybody know about the trial specifically that we haven't covered yet? Oh, we're still waiting um, for a verdict, I think. What is it? Is it Thursday? It's Is it's it already Thursday. Thursday? I think it's Thursday, And yeah. it's past four o'clock, so court's already out. So um, we're waiting. I think a lot of people are hoping to hear something by the end of tomorrow. Can you speculate on what you think the verdict will be? I really, well, I thought it was going to be, I thought they were going to convict him. And I thought that if they did, it would be quick. Uh, the longer it goes on, the le- to me personally, I believe the longer it goes on, the less likely uh, a, un- a unanimous conviction is. Uh, I think that's just the nature of it. Like mm. the reason it's dragging, if it were, now look, I don't think where we're at right now can really be described as having dragged on very long. I really don't think so. But that's why I, I say, I think people are really hoping to hear something tomorrow. Because yeah. if after three days you don't have a consensus, I don't know that you're going to get one. So I do think he's going to be found guilty. But the more the hours tick on, uh, the less confident that I am of that. So we'll see. All right. 
Well, if I had a Linda Listen for this episode, it would be, Linda Listen, you can't go around assaulting people and expect to have no consequences. That's right. Well, thank you so much for jumping on with us. And everyone, if you haven't already, check out Aaron's channel, Growing Up in Scientology. We'll link it below. You can go into the full in-depth coverage, day-to-day coverage of the trial and be in the loop. Anything else you want to add, Love? I feel like we just scratched the surface. I was at the edge of my seat for the last three weeks, tapping into your daily recaps. I can't say enough. Go to his channel. Check it out. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And for everyone watching, thank you so much. And if you want to support the podcast, you can go to my Patreon, patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. It would mean the world. And until next time, follow your highest excitement. Be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts2Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts2Consciousness at gmail.com.